Welcome to Gateway's podcast. We hope God speaks to you through this message from one of our pastors. For more information about Gateway, please visit www.gatewaybc.com. Good place to begin, a reminder of the sovereignty of God. Well, hey, everybody, I'm Tag. Nice to see you here uh, this morning. And today we're going to be continuing in our series uh, in the book of Acts. Now, this is our second week. If you missed last week, you can check it out online at the uh, sermon archive on gatewaybc.com. Get all caught up. And Pastor Don last week reminded us that even though the official title of the uh, book is, uh, in your Bible, it may be called the Acts of the Apostles, it really, we can think about it as the Acts of the Holy Spirit, right? And what he did there in that early church and the focus on how God started growing his church right there in those first weeks after Jesus's resurrection. Now, we're going to be moving on into Acts chapter two today. And if you've maybe grown up around church, you've grown up around God, or you're familiar with some of these things that we're going to talk about today, I would just encourage you to try to dive into this as if you're hearing it for the first time. Um, because sometimes we can get so bogged down in what we're familiar with that we might miss what God wants to show us uh, when we take a look. And this is one of those major passages of the New Testament. I mean, it's a major, major passage uh, about uh, Jesus, about our faith, about what God's doing, and we don't want to miss that. So if you remember, Acts was actually uh, written by the same Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke, which is that, that third book of the New Testament. And we know this because both of these books start off with a note to this guy named Theophilus, who's probably the benefactor or the sponsor uh, for Luke to write and research these things, right? Now, just by Theophilus's name, which is the fun one, I'm sure when he was in trouble, Theophilus, Theophilus is his name. Um, We know that he was Greek rather than Jewish, right? So what that means is that he had not probably grown up knowing much about uh, God, knowing much about the Old Testament, uh, not being familiar with the history of Israel, the prophets, that deep longing for the Messiah and all that means. Now, the reason I think this is actually kind of good to know is because it lets us see how Luke is writing in both Luke and Acts uh, for someone who, you know, doesn't really know a whole lot about it. And maybe didn't grow up with that. So my thought is like, maybe if you're like me, didn't come from a long background of folks who were walking with God or, um, you know, people who were um, in this long line of a familial kind of thing. Like, hey, this is a great place to start. Luke and Acts are great places to begin because Luke is writing, right, for us. Now, because of who he's writing for, He tells us at the beginning of the introduction to the gospel of Luke that, hey, he assembled a lot of this information um, along with other people who are also writing, which would speak to the reality that uh, we talk about in here, that we can trust uh, the Bible because we know that what he's referring to are those other gospels, right, that we see at the beginning of the New Testament, which are telling us firsthand eyewitness accounts of what Jesus said and did. And then the second thing that we know from Luke's 
gospel intro is that, that Luke is writing and he uses this word, so Theophilus, so that you can know with certainty, right? You can know with certainty. And what Luke is saying is like, hey, look, this is not some legend. This is not historical fiction. You know, I'm not embellishing things. I am writing what happened. Now, I, you know, I, I deal a lot with uh, the, the, the whippersnappers, the younger crowd. And when people, and maybe you've had this experience, when people want to talk about the Bible, a lot of times, you know, you'll have this conversation, they'll go, well, you know, I mean, I really don't believe that. It's just kind of mythological, you know, it's like all the, the gods of Rome and Greece and blah, blah, blah. But here's the thing. When someone talks with me about the Bible like that, that typically means they really may have not looked deeply into it. Because what you'll see in Luke and Acts is um, especially, right, in these books, there's a lot of reference to real life places, right? Real life known historical events, a lot of references to governors, to officials, rulers, because they wanted us to know that we could trust these things, right? With certainty, they wanted us to be able, honestly, to fact check what they wrote, which would be a nice approach for our media outlets today. Boom, there you go, I did it. I had to do it. It's funny, it's just funny. So Acts is volume two, right, of, of Luke's research. And this is the introduction he gives in chapter one. He said, now I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given orders through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Now, after he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So here you have more of the same. And Luke is saying convincing proofs. Again, making the claim, hey, this is historical. And 40 days, by the way, uh, that's too long for some mass hallucination, right? For all these people to just think, well, I think he came to me. I don't know. Like that's a long time. Okay. So obviously um, there is the factuality of Jesus hanging out with them for that time. We also knew that, know that Luke by his name was also from a Greek background. And so not steeped as well in Judaism. And so his experience of Jesus was coming after the ministry of Jesus. We learn later uh, that Paul mentions him in the book of Colossians that Luke was also a physician. And scholars say that that's totally in agreement with his gospel, the book of Acts, that his writing style and his vocabulary is actually some of the most developed that we have in the New Testament. Um, not sure what that says about doctors, but there you go. So I'm saying all this to say, we can have confidence that what we're reading about and where we are today actually happened, right? Jesus told them plainly, in some ways, what was going to happen, we'll see that. <clears throat> but what we see is actually kind of what happened. Now, Pastor Don walked us through chapter one last week. And in that chapter, we saw that they were trying to figure out what to do. The disciples didn't know what to do. Jesus had ascended. He went away. We know that they did replace um, the unfortunate disciple named Judas uh, with a guy named Matthias. So now we come to chapter two. And we're going to read the entire passage. So hang on. Uh, just to get us started so that we can stay on track. Because this passage is packed with truths that can guide us for the entirety of our walk with Jesus. 
You know, whether maybe you're in here and you're just starting to figure out what that means, or maybe you're further down the path, the principles that we're going to look at today, what we see, how we see God work in this passage, I'm telling you all time, like if we found our relationship with God on these principles, it's for all time. So here we go. Let's start chapter two, verse one. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were staying. And tongues like flames of fire that were divided, so like flickering flames, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in different languages as the Spirit gave them ability for speech. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one, of, uh, each one heard them speaking in his own language. And they were astounded and amazed, saying, look, aren't, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Now, uh, the reason for this is because apparently uh, the Galilean language, there were certain gutturals and pronunciations that were a little bit funky, swallowed, whatever. <clears throat> and so even though they were speaking these other languages, people could still hear the remnants of the Galilean dialect. So how is it that each of us can hear in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, in Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, Arabs, we hear them speaking the magnificent acts of God in our own languages. They were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, what could this be? But some sneered and said, well, they're full of new wine. And that's just, a, that's just a, a way of saying, well, they were drunk. You know, they're drunk. So Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and proclaimed to them, now men of Judah and all you residents of Jerusalem, let me explain this to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. Now we hear that and we're like, ha, huh, yeah, it's too early, day drinking. But what he's saying is, you know, these were all Jewish believers. They were not allowed to have wine until certain parts of the day and nine o'clock was not one of them. So he's saying, it's nine o'clock, you know that nobody has been drinking. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel, which is an Old Testament prophet. And then he quotes, and it will be in the last day, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my male and female servants in those days, and they will prophesy. I will display wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the great and remarkable day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's a lot going on in there. There's a lot going on there. So let's just get started at the very beginning. Uh, Verse one, this little phrase, when the day of Pentecost had arrived. And this is where we start because this shows us kind of our first thing to notice here. Number one, we must remember that God is always at work whether we see it or not, whether we see it or not. So think about your own life. What's going on in your life? Do you wonder, is like, is God paying attention? Like, do you think maybe he's over in this little corner of the universe like you don't see him, you don't hear him, like you're, you're just trying to muddle through. I think that most of us at one point or another um, kind of feel like this. And, and mostly, honestly, it's about timing. 
I mean, we expect that God should be doing something or should be stepping in at some specific time we have in mind. And then when he doesn't, we take it that he doesn't care or maybe he's not listening, something like that. Because when you think about it, honestly, now think about this. Timing is really the only thing that we can't manipulate, finagle, work. And that's why it's so frustrating because we're in this culture that is, you know, I get what I want when I want it exactly when I desire to have it, right? I, um, I'm weird like this. So I went online, I was thinking about this. And those subscription boxes, right? Y'all familiar with the subscription boxes? You sign up, they'll send you something, you know, whatever. It's a subscription thing. And um, I was like, what is the weirdest one I can find? What's the most random one I can find, right? So I went online. Let me read you this description. Uh, This is the dog mom box. Dog mom box. So here's, and by the way, if you hear this, and you go online and you order this, there's no shame. Like, it's okay. Like, you can do it. If this sounds like a great idea to you, it's totally fine. So so no no judgment here. Here's the description. Dog mom box is a fertastic way to spoil your pooch while treating yourself. Doting dog moms and their favorite four-legged friends are in for a treat with a curated box of gift items, including accessories, apparel, dog mom swag for her, plus puppy treats and a durable toy. Now that's not a bad thing, but I'm like, are you like, we can't just go pick out our own dog toys anymore. Like we have to be able to order them. We have to be able to get them when we want them. You know, I think that because of the way our world works, we, we project this kind of, when we don't see God doing anything, we think that nothing is happening. And Nothing, honestly, is further from the truth at all. This is what Isaiah says in chapter 64. From ancient times, no one has heard, no one has listened, no eye has seen any God except you who acts on behalf of the one who waits for him. See, here's the reality. The reality is that God is acting on our behalf the entire time. He's acting on your behalf, my behalf, the entire time. Now, I know that many of you are probably much more aware Bible readers um, than I am because I grew up hearing about Pentecost and kind of thinking about it only in this particular chapter, this context. But the reality is there is a deep history behind just that little phrase. And um, yeah, I think it's helpful for us to look at that. So hang with me. In the Old Testament, God clearly and specifically directed the nation of Israel as his people to celebrate yearly festivals, okay, for the whole nation. And uh, this was obviously to, uh, you know, to kind of circumvent the fact that when things get better, we tend to forget, right, the hard times. And so God wanted them to remember his faithfulness. So the Feast of Pentecost, which is the one that's mentioned here, which is also called the Feast of First Fruits or the Feast of Weeks, was one of the main three feasts of the Jewish year where basically every Jewish man was to make a journey to the temple to celebrate them. So the point of Pentecost was to celebrate the first fruits of the harvest. So like the beginning of the harvest, right? Then it also started to shift a little bit because 50 days after the Israelites escaped from Egypt was when God gave them the 10 commandments at Mount Sinai, right? So 
it's this idea then of thankfulness for what God has done, right, with the, the harvest. And then thankfulness for him helping them know how they should live. Now, I'm going to go back. The previous feast to this would be one that you probably have heard of before, maybe if you've been around church and the God thing. Uh, that was called Passover, right? Which was celebrated uh, as a way to remember that when the Israelites were brought out of Egypt, right, at that last plague because Pharaoh would not let them go, there was the angel of death that went throughout, right? And so God directed the Israelites. He said, look, you're going to go on a journey. I want you to eat lamb. I want you to get sustenance, right? Meat, sacrifice that perfect lamb. Not only will that provide sustenance, but then take that blood and put that on the doorposts of where you're staying so that the angel of death will know that you belong to me, right? Now the gospels are clear that when Jesus was crucified, so let's bring it back into where we are. When Jesus was crucified, that was during the feast of Passover, right? Jesus as the perfect sacrificial lamb. That's why John the Baptist, years before Jesus' crucifixion, saw Jesus coming toward him, it says in John 1.29, here is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus at his point, at that death, fulfills the picture of the Passover, right? A one-time sacrifice this time for all to save us from death. Now here we are at the next feast, exactly 50 days after Jesus' death and resurrection. And here, God again is fulfilling the picture that the feast pointed toward. Number one, a blessing on his people through provision, right? Through this Holy Spirit. And then a new, better way for us to live in a relationship that's restored with him because of his indwelling spirit, right? So no longer are we just going to look at these, these laws, these rules, right? Those were meant to inspire us to follow him. But now he says, hey, look, I'm going to do something new. And he gives this gift of the spirit. Ezekiel 36 says this as a prophecy of what was going to happen. God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. So let's think about God's timing. So Jesus's death in 33 AD during the Passover celebration as the perfect lamb to save us once for all time. That's not an accident. Now we go 50 days later and God gives the, the at the Feast of Pentecost, his Holy Spirit to indwell, to celebrate the beginning of the new things that he's doing through Jesus's resurrection. That's not an accident. Like there are no coincidences, you ready? There are no coincidences on God's calendar for us, for God's larger work in the world, for whatever he's doing. See, God's calendar was moving slowly, steadily, and surely towards these fulfillments. And he's working his calendar for you and me as well. I mean, what is it that you're wanting God to take notice of? Maybe there's stuff going on in your family, right? Maybe there's, you know, habits or hangups. Maybe you're looking for relief in your circumstances. And what I'd say is, you know, don't give up hope, right? Just because... You think nothing is happening. You, you don't see God. And you're like, there must be nothing happening. It's like, no, he is working on our behalf. Whether or not it lines up 
with our own idea of timing. I mean, this is where we get trapped. This is where I get trapped, right? It's this expectation of how it should all work out, right? <clears throat> I remember there was a point where our family was getting ready to move overseas. It's a huge process. I mean, we were trying to raise funding for the project. It was visas. It was buying a house. It was bank accounts. It was, I mean, everything. And the deal was because we had, at that point, <clears throat> actually, we still have four kids. They were just small at that point. Our four kids, you know, the deal was, hey, let's get over there for school to start. And I remember just feeling this tension. And so my wife's older brother, who at that point had moved uh, with the ministry he was with, he moved every year with his family. He just reminded us, he said, look, timing is God's deal. Availability is ours. And he said, you know what? He goes, you're feeling this. He goes, but you know what? Hey, it doesn't matter. Whenever you get there, guess what? New school, new language you don't speak, new system, new country. Like, it doesn't matter. So relax and allow God to work out his timing. And it was like someone took their fingers and it was, and all of the pressure just kind of went away, right? Because the reminder was God is working. So let him work in here today. God is working, right? If you belong to him, you've made that decision to follow him through Christ. God is working on your behalf. So let him work. Second thing we see is this. Remaining obedient to God places us in circumstances to experience him in amazing ways. Now we pop back up into chapter one. So what, what, what did Jesus tell them to do? When he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the father's promise. This, he said, is what you heard from me for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So don't leave Jerusalem. Then in Acts 2, 1, what do we see? When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, Jesus gave them what to me is a very typical <laughs> Jesus instruction, which means it's clear, it's very specific, but you really don't have any idea what it means, right? If you really look at what he said to them, he's like, hey, do this, stay there. Woo, Holy Spirit baptism. What does that mean? They had no idea, honestly. And still, they stayed obedient to what they, they knew. And as Pastor Don said, we know there's about 120 of them that were there. And because of that obedience, they were able to experience this once in a human history event. You get that one time God did this and they were able to experience it. Because our obedience to God, and I'm not talking about perfection, I'm talking about pursuit, puts us in a place where we will experience him in ways that we'll miss out on if we're not following him. And Pastor Don, he talked about the disciples, uh, kind, of, kind of what their, their mindset must have been. But I mean, think about it. Put yourself in that situation, right? So Jesus, the guy that you're following, has just been crucified. And you remember why he was crucified, right? Because they said he was treasonous, right? He was trying to go against, you know, the empire. So he's crucified, he's killed. I mean, okay, you see him, he's back. Okay, that's great. He says, wait here. So it's been, you know, 50 days. It's been a number of weeks that you're in Jerusalem, which is where all this happened, which is where everybody knows you. I mean, can you imagine like the knock on the door every time? I'd have been freaking out, honestly. I, I mean, you'd be thinking they're coming to arrest you, right? The officials on any side, right? 
I, I have to be honest with you. I kind of figured that if I had been there at that day, it had been a serious temptation for me to go, hey man, anybody want a red box or something? Like I'll just, you know, go down the market. Like, yeah, go down. Just go and just keep on walking, right? Because the last place I would want to be is in Jerusalem where everybody knew what was going on and knew where we were staying, right? But because of their obedience, they were in the room when this thing happened. And sometimes we get tangled up. We're like, I, I know, but how do I know? How do I know what obedience really means? How do I really, really know where God wants me to be? What he wants me to do? And we have this long look down the road and we ask this question. We want to know the future, right? But look what they did. They went with the plain word. They didn't know everything that was going to happen. They just knew, don't leave, stay together, right? Think about this. Don't we have enough things in our lives that we already know we should be obedient about? Understandings of how God wants us to live. Then we need to be obedient in those things, right? Just do the simple, plain things that we know to do. And then know that God will shift us and change us and make us aware of areas that need to be surrendered to him. And then we'll be obedient to them as well. And we put ourselves at that point where we can see God at work. So here's the question for us. How many things in our lives may be a little different or may have been a little different if we had been where we knew God wanted us to be instead of like for me going to Redbox, right? Better question, let's move forward. Better question, what choices do we need to make like right now so that I'm living in obedience to God and can get in on all he wants me to be involved with? All right, so let's move on. Number three, the next thing we see is that we can rely on God to equip us for what he asks us to do. <clears throat> Acts 2, 8 says, how is it that each of us can hear in our own native language? Now, remember what happened? I know it was a long time ago, but remember what happened? Um, there is not, let me be clear on this. There is not some hurricane rushing wind that blows through the room. Although, I, I mean, I've seen that. I've seen it in paintings, everything else, right? If you look closely, it's the sound of a rushing wind, Right? Why just the sound? Because I think God wanted them to know this is not a natural phenomenon, right? I used to, I used to kind of laugh a little bit when you hear people talk about like a bad storm or tornado and they would talk about the sound of a freight train, right? Um, but then we were close to one and you know what it sounds like? Yeah, it sounds like a freight train. Anybody ever been there? Yeah, right. Yeah, it does. It really does. So you have to understand these people are up in this room. They hear this sound. Nothing's moving, right? Nothing's moving. One of the wild things about this, you know, why would God do that? The, the word for spirit and wind, both in Hebrew and Greek, are related. So, right, this is God saying, hey, this is my spirit. This is not the wind. What you're hearing is my spirit. And then they see fire, which is obviously uh, deeply significant as well, if you're familiar with some of the biblical accounts. You remember there was fire at the burning bush for Moses. Uh, there was a pillar of fire that guided Israel uh, through the wilderness, especially, uh, you know, at night. There was a consuming fire that showed up 
with God's presence on Mount Sinai. There was a, a fire then that hovered over this tabernacle, this place where they would meet. There was fire in the temple. So fire is a sign of God's presence. He's like, hey, it is me. They come to rest on each one of them. And in case anyone was there who thought, nah, this is all just normal. It's like a gas main or something, right? Um, then they all start speaking in different world languages that, that Luke listed out, right? We read that so that we could know um, the point, right? And Luke's description of what, how this all worked with the languages means like if I was there and I was in that room and this happened to me and I, I was one of the disciples, me who knows no Mandarin, right, for example, would suddenly start speaking Mandarin so well that a native Mandarin speaker could, could understand what I was saying. Now notice also in this, it never says that the ones who were speaking actually understood what was saying. Remember the people listening were like, what are they doing? They're talking about God's activities, his miraculous works and doings and everything else. So what's going on here? Well, in Acts 1.8, let's see what Jesus said. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, what did Luke say about the people who were there? He said they were devout men, right? From all over, every nation under heaven. And why were they there? What did I say? This was one of the feasts where people had to come from all over to celebrate. So you have every nation represented there, kind of in that known world at the time, celebrating. And now they hear the truth of God in their own language. Because the reality is that God will absolutely equip his people for what he asks them to do. I love this. I mean, I, you just got to think that when Jesus was talking to the disciples, he was like, yeah, hey, you'll do this and this and go to the ends of the earth. They're like, okay, but I don't speak languages. He's like, okay, now you do, right? Because he was going to equip them supernaturally to fulfill what he asked them to do. So here's the personal thing. So what is it that God has asked you to do? I mean, does it feel impossible? Well, maybe that should be a reason to dive into it even deeper, right? I'm not saying that God, you know, may necessarily want you to move halfway around the world, but he might. But what I am saying is we need to get out of the bondage to our common sense that most of us live in and operate in the sphere of a faith that's grounded in God's spirit, leading, guiding, and equipping us. Ephesians 2 says it very, I mean, very plainly, we are his creation created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them, right? He's got it laid out. As they say, God will prepare us for what he has prepared for us. And you know, the definition of success, significance is walking in God's path for you. I'm not saying, you know, you need to get somewhere in tens of thousands and 50,000 people. I mean, it's, it's not what it's about. Has God called you to be a teacher? Guess what? He's gonna supernaturally equip you to have influence in the lives of those students and the families. Has God called you to be a parent? Are you in that role? Guess what? He wants to supernaturally equip you to lead your family. I mean, what about that one person in your office? 
that you know, you can see this, this opening, this need to connect with him. God wants to supernaturally equip you to have that conversation. So we can jump, right, into these things with confidence that we can rely on God when we follow his leading in faith. A little side note, I do think it's interesting that when you look at this, you see the responses, right? Which I think is still true today. So people see this crazy, amazing stuff and said half of them are like, okay, this is absolutely God. And the other half are like, that's goofy. They're just drunk, right? Isn't that wild how we haven't changed? All right, so let's go to our final, final point for this part of the chapter. Number four, read the Bible. Very simple, read the Bible. When Peter looks to understand what God is doing, he turns to the Bible. He says this, Acts 2.16, on the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. Now next week, Pastor Don will be back. He'll give a a very uh, clear explanation of, man, the message that Peter delivers and how he lets them know uh, who Jesus is, what he's done for us, how that works. I mean, it's, it's crazy, but here's the thing. Peter starts from the Bible, right? Peter knows what the Bible says will happen. If we want to recognize what God's doing around us, we need to spend time in the Bible. Peter would have had no framework, right? He'd have been, he'd have been like me. He's like, what is going on here? Is there a concord here? Where's it? Get online, What's, right? To try to explain it, but he didn't. He knew God's word. And for us, like, man, it's tough to go on without the knowledge of God that we find in the Bible. Now, and I'll tell you this, I love osmosis. I think it's awesome, wonderful. But wouldn't it be great if it worked with, with information? Now, osmosis is that thing where stuff, there's super concentrated with a lot of little bits and pieces, moves to some place where there's not as many bits and pieces, right? So in high school, it, I, I took my chemistry book, I put it under my pillow, right? Because there's a lot of information about chemistry in the book. Uh, my head was empty. There was no information about chemistry in my head. Unfortunately, I hate to tell you that there still is no information about chemistry in my head because apparently osmosis does not work from a textbook into your brain. Yeah. And being close to the Bible doesn't really, I mean, it's great that we've got the app if you've got the app, but if you don't read it or if it's on the nightstand, whatever, it, it doesn't matter. And I'm not, I'm not talking about having to study like, you know, 26 hours a day because you can tell I wasn't a math major, but finding ways to build the Bible into the regular rhythms of your life. So maybe it is online, maybe it's devotional. I mean, maybe you're the kind that, man, you see, you know, a study Bible that's got notes in it. I mean, you could drive nails with that thing. That excites you. If that's you, like get one, do it, whatever it takes to see how God works and who he is throughout history because he will use that in your life. Second Timothy shows us this. Paul's writing to a young pastor. He says, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. So that the person of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Do you want to be fully developed, fully complete, equipped and ready for what God brings? Then spend time in the Bible. I probably would recommend Luke and Acts, just saying, because that's where we are right now. So I said at the beginning of our time today that uh, this passage is amazing because of the way it shows us things that if we'll put them into our lives, right, no matter where we are in our walk with God, Um, It will keep us in this, I'm going to say, sweet spot, right? 
Because really, this is how we position ourselves in faith to experience God in the here and now. You ready for this? It's gonna freak you out. The future doesn't exist. The past we remember. The only life we're living is here and now, right? And that's, that's where God wants to meet us. So if we weave these truths into our lives here and now, this is what it looks like. Every day, we, we remember that God is always at work. Every day, we remain obedient to God so that we can experience him. Every day, we rely on God to equip us for what he asks us to do. Every day, we read the Bible. I mean, can you imagine what the people there on that day at Pentecost, the stories when they talk to people about what they saw God do? Can you imagine them retelling all of the details, how it was so obvious and so plain that God did that? Think about yourself. Can you imagine as you live in a faith like this, what you'll be able to tell people about the ways you've seen God work so plainly, so obviously in your life, right? Jesus told those early disciples, you will be my witnesses. And amazingly enough, he has the same task for us today. Let's be there to experience what he has for us and bear witness to it. Let's pray.